Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Brian Stannard. Last name is spelled S-T-A-N-N-A-R-D. He's just published an outstanding book, January 2024. Title of the book is Alcatraz Ghost Story, Roy Gardner's Amazing Train Robberies, Escapes, and Lifelong Love. And you'll see the title of it here if you're watching this on X or Rockfin. And it's very well researched. And I grew up in the Bay Area, and it just brought back a lot of memories of the city of San Francisco, the location, San Quentin, Alcatraz, which uh, is really right in the center of the Bay. But uh, Brian can talk more about the background. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, thank you again for having me. And so, yes, this is, on the one hand, very much a Bay Area story. It's also a, a West Coast story. Uh, when I was doing research on Roy Gardner and some of the other members of the storyline, I was always struck by how much mileage they covered for the 1920s. Uh, for myself, the story or my interest in this began, actually, I currently work at Alcatraz as a tour guide. But uh, in the early 2000s, I worked in the Tenderloin. And in the Tenderloin, I mentioned this in the introduction of the book, I, I was just always for those not familiar with the Tenderloin, it's a well-established skid row in San Francisco and a lot of heartache and just difficult situations to observe, but a lot of just compelling stories of survival. And I was working in and out of the single room occupancy hotels, which are often referred to as SROs. And you would see old people struggling to do their best in a really hard environment and immigrant communities also struggling to survive. And this made an impression on me. And at that time period, I, I had generalized ideas of maybe wanting to get a story out of this somehow. And it was just something that was always percolating in my mind. And then once I started working at Alcatraz in a career shift, that's when I first started learning about Roy Gardner. And I became really fascinated when I learned that Roy Gardner was one of the first inmates at Alcatraz. He was within the same group as Machine Gun Kelly, and he was an Alcatraz contemporary of Al Capone. But when he finished his prison obligations, he ended up in the Tenderloin. So going back to the 1930s, Roy Gardner was one of these types of people that I would see in passing. But from my perspective, I would see this person in 2000. And then I just really got my imagination thinking that this kind of mystery goes all the way back to the 1930s, 1940s. And so, again, I just became absolutely fascinated by Roy Gardner. And I had never heard of him before. And I'm from the Bay Area. And, William, you had mentioned at the start of the show that you're familiar with Bay Area history. And you had never heard of him prior to this book as well. And that that is what got my antenna up. I just couldn't believe that such a wild story hadn't been done before. And so that was part of my initial research was just making sure that it hadn't been done extensively before. And there were a few bits of information in the Alcatraz library about him, but it, it was all a little bit fragmented. And then, so his story, his criminal story in a nutshell is that uh, he was a train robber. He would rob the, he would rob trains, he would rob U.S. mail trucks. Uh, his first mail truck robbery was in San Diego. And then once he was caught, he became an escape artist. There were several attempts to get him up to McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington State and he would always escape. And he be, he gained a reputation for being a bit of a gentleman bandit. He was 
got the nickname the Smiling Bandit. He also got the nickname the Human Eel because every time they tried to transport him to McNeil Island, he would escape. And he managed to do so with a minimum amount of bloodshed. And it, it didn't help in terms of his uh, media popularity that he was a conventionally handsome guy and he was kind of a charming person. But what I found interesting, and even after doing all this research, I don't have an answer to it. And that's what I, I'm always curious to get other people's feedback was, was this uh, charming personality? Was he really maybe perhaps a used car salesman or was he really a scoundrel? And there's other elements that kind of make it a, a cryptic situation to figure out. But he wasn't a pure thief. Like he actually went straight. Like he was straight for a time and then resorted to crimes and, and went on a kind of crime spree. But he was kind of working uh, conventional jobs as miners or in the military too, before he became a criminal, criminal, right? Yes. And so, so that is absolutely correct. And that just adds to the, the intriguing element of it. He would toggle back and forth, like you had mentioned, uh, between doing, uh, between being law abiding and he was a family man. He had a wife and a daughter and he was a welder, a, a really respected welder initially at Mare Island. So he was a welder during the World War I time period. And then in time, he started his own welding business in Oakland. And again, he was, by every account, a very respected, high-quality welder. But then he would just get into these weird phases where um, he would... Well, I should back up a set, uh, step. So... He, he had a gambling, he, probably his Achilles heel is that he was a gambler. And so he, the one big event that really kind of set him on a bad course is he went down to Tijuana and it's, I, I had to chuckle because Tijuana has such a reputation nowadays is where people go to, where Americans go to, to engage in their bad behavior. And I was chuckling that that phenomenon goes back even back to the World War One time period. So he had a bad day at the racetrack. And then in order to make things right with his wife, he decided to rob a mail truck. And that just sent a butterfly effect of, of events and situations, uh, eventually landing him at Alcatraz. And so, again, that does contribute to the, to the fascinating nature of him is that he was a welder. He did have a family. He had periods of his life where he was not committing crimes and then he would toggle in the other direction and so that was another source of intrigue for me because nowadays there's some discussion and it's an open-ended discussion with gambling as to whether or not it would fit the definition of being a addiction and i think that there are aspects of the mentality of a, a gambler that i think could fall into the under the category of addiction and then when i started working at Alcatraz, I personally was working through some addiction problems as well. And my marriage was on the rocks. And at this point in time, everything is doing much better, you know, knock on wood. And so that was also the part of the Roy Gardner story that intrigued me. And I mentioned this in the introduction is that he was always trying to keep his marriage together. But again, he had this Achilles heel of gambling, which then created these bad behaviors of robbing trains and escaping from prison that was, he, he just couldn't keep out of his own way. And I think that that is a quintessential description of a person with any kind of addiction issue, uh, which is my own experience with it as well. And so 
by the time I started working at Alcatraz, it just, there were all of these different variables that led him to be absolutely fascinating to me. And I just had to learn more about him. And I was very, very surprised that there was such a limited amount of information available about him. So I just started uh, doing the research on the newspaper time, uh, the re of the newspapers of the time period. And then that became a very fascinating part of the journey as well to realize that within the context of 1920, 1921, he was a media sensation. And back then the media was dominated by newspapers. So he was in the newspapers on an almost daily basis in 1921 due to his exploits of escaping from prison and being on the run and being on the lamb and being kind of charming and then getting recaptured and escaping again. And the other thing that I learned that during this time period, I think a lot of us, this was my bias going into it, is we think of the Roaring Twenties, the 1920s, as this big, long party. But through my research, I learned that the early 1920s was actually a, a pretty grinding uh, recession time period. And it just, I was, I found it striking the similarities a hundred years later uh, where I don't know if a recession is the correct word, but we're facing many of the similar economic problems. There's a big global pandemic we're working through. A hundred years ago, it was the Spanish flu that everyone was, that was the pandemic from a hundred years ago. And the recession a hundred years ago in large part was due to the uh, first world war one and all the damage that that had caused. And so I think that in the context of 1921, Roy Gardner was a little bit of a mischievous diversion for reporters for all of this other um, aggravation happening in the larger world. Right. He was kind of like an anti-hero, like people admired him because of his looks and his manner. He wasn't a really nasty. And some of his guards like him, like he had long-term relationships with the guy who arrested him, if I remember correctly. So he didn't quite, he fit more of like a Robin Hood ethos than a really hardened gangster like Al Capone or something. Yes, exactly. And so that is uh, what is interesting. And so that was the the media narrative that, that formed around him. But then it gets a little bit, there, there's a few developments that happen that, that kind of undercut that a little bit. And it's, it gets a little bit murky at times. And so that, that was the other aspect that I thought was interesting is that once the media formed their impression of him uh, and it was like I said this mischievous bandit um, it kind of became locked in place and when other developments came about they couldn't quite uh, pivot to explore the the more complicated story and that's why I think it it's today still a complicated and interesting story because like you were saying before, the concept of the anti-hero, or I even meant, use the expression of an anti-villain, someone who, who's a rascal and a bandit for sure, but is likable and he's not hyper-violent, but then, you know, is he? Like, what's the real story here? And it, given that he died in 1940, we, we can't ask him any follow-up questions. So it's a compelling mystery. And that's why I think it was such an interesting story. But that was another aspect of his escapes is like it would capture the public imagination. So when he busted out of the island, it was uh, McNeil Island, which is kind of south of Seattle. Uh, they didn't know if he, did, he was dead or alive because he was shot twice, right? Correct. Can you and, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, McNeil Island Penitentiary, 
is uh, based near Seattle, like you said. And in a way, it's, in many ways, it's similar to Alcatraz in that it is an island. It's surrounded by water and the icy, the cold water with raging currents was set up to be considered a deterrent for from inmates escaping. And so during one of his escapes, uh, Roy Gardner managed to escape and he had been shot twice during that escape attempt, uh, but they couldn't find a body. And so that became part of the similar to the the interest in the famous Alcatraz escape that motivated the movie Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood is that they know the escape happened, but there's no body. There's no body dead. There's no body. Al- uh, they didn't find a dead body. They didn't find anyone alive. So it just creates this intriguing mystery uh, compounded by the fact that the public knew Roy Gardner as this kind of likable, handsome man. So I think people, a lot of people were kind of secretly rooting him on. And then within the context of 1921, there was this anti-communist hysteria happening. So a lot of the local police departments thought that he was being sheltered by communist agents. And there's a lot of uh, what I felt was kind of dated, but humorous language around that. And so the story just became very compelling. And then, and again, during the his time period on the land, there were all kinds of uh, sightings that could have been sightings, but who knows what they were. And it just added to this overall story of this guy who just could not be kept in prison. And then prior to McNeil Island, even prior to all of his escapes in the United States, he had even escaped from a prison in Mexico. So during the Mexican Revolution, during the early days of the Mexican Revolution, uh, Roy Gardner had been working as a miner. This is during a phase when he was legitimately employed. He was working as a copper miner in Arizona. But then there was a, a really horrific mine cave-in, and it almost killed him. But uh, they did a surgery, and they put a metal plate in his head, and they kind of bandaged him up. And that was sort of his motivation, though, to find a different line of work. Uh, even though working in a mine seemed kind of dangerous, he made the decision that maybe running guns for the Mexican Revolution would be a good alternative. Uh, And so I think that just kind of speaks to his personality as these wild decisions he's making that don't seem to have much... uh, He doesn't seem to respect his uh, vitality too much. He decided to go down as a a white American down into Mexico to, to be part of the Mexican Revolution. And he, of course, got caught and thrown into a Mexican prison. Uh, but he escaped from a Mexican prison. So that was actually one of his first jail breaks was from a Mexican prison. And uh, he managed to make it back to the United States. And that kind of was, again, part of him toggling back and forth between finding legitimate work and then sometimes that wouldn't pan out. So he would just kind of impulsively rob a place and then go back to prison. So when he came back to the United States, he became a boxer. And that was became a bit of a lucrative career for him for a little while. Uh, And then he came back to California. And this is one of the historical segments about the Bay Area that I actually had the most fun researching was the culture of boxing in California around 1910 and all these competing elements. Um, The local mayor who had probably the best uh, nickname of a politician I've heard was uh, Pinhead McCarthy. And so he really wanted to promote boxing within San Francisco. The 1906 earthquake had recently happened. So he thought that this was a good way to bring in commerce into San Francisco. And Roy Gardner, who had a boxing career at that point, came back to San Francisco to try to 
to capitalize on that. But then different elements did not want boxing to be part of the social fabric. Uh, there were all these competing civic elements who had different visions of what they wanted San Francisco to be after the 1906 earthquake as the city was rebuilding. And so in that kind of muddiness, uh, Ray Gardner's career, he just kind of stopped being a boxer at that point, uh, mainly because boxing technically became illegal for a phase in California. And so kind of as is the trend in his life, he would work legitimate jobs and then that just wouldn't really work out oftentimes because he'd be gambling. But sometimes if he, in the case of boxing, if they outlawed boxing, he just couldn't do that anymore. And so he did this what to me felt like an impulsive robbery near Union Square in San Francisco, and he got caught right away and sent to San Quentin. So San Quentin was one of his first American uh, American prison experiences. And his San Quentin time period was a little bit different for him in that he just did his time. He did not try to escape. Uh, but then once he was released from San Quentin, he tried to work legitimate jobs for a while, including being a welder. And that's when he met his wife and had a kid. Uh, but then he had that fateful day at the Tijuana racetrack. And that's when he really started his crime spree of being a bandit around 1920. And that's when he really entered the, the public's imagination where he was in the newspapers on an almost daily basis in 1921. Right. And he was kind of, uh, he was older. He was in his thirties, right. Or something like that. When he first started doing his no more notorious crimes, right. He, he was, yes. Can you talk about his relationship? Because part of the book is his relationship with his wife. He really stayed with him almost to the end, right? Dolly. Yes. And so his wife, Dolly, and so that is a, a very fascinating part of the book. I might almost consider that to be almost the primary thread of the book. I had mentioned in the introduction that all of his jail breaks and escapes and kind of his hemming it up for the reporters, for me, that had kind of you know, the, the teenager version of myself found that to be really exciting and entertaining. I dug all that. But the older, more mature part of my mind that's currently married and as pretty much everyone who's been married, you have ups and downs and marriages and conflicts and things you all got to work out. His relationship with his wife, Dolly, is what I actually found fascinating because I felt like they didn't have this language for that time period. But going back to sort of addiction terminology, she fell into this role of being what I would say was codependent. She, by every account, she, she by the way, is an incredibly likable person throughout. She's one of almost all the characters in the book, to some degree or another, are kind of scoundrels, but likable scoundrels, with the exception of Dolly, who I think um, she just comes out as one of the more uh, likable people consistently in the book. Uh, but she does not have to be a villain who's interesting. She's just a straightforward, likable person who I would say might have fallen into the category of being codependent. Uh, my sense is that Roy swept her off her feet. She was only a teenager when they met. And at that point, he was already in his 20s. Uh, so they had a courtship where I can imagine this older, conventionally handsome man who's very charismatic by every account. Uh sweeps her off her feet, they get married, they have a child, and then he starts doing all these high-profile crimes. And she she comes to his aid, and it, his high-profile crimes, there was never any dispute that he did them. 
it wasn't a case of, oh, my God, he, the courts have railroaded him. He did not do this. He, he's been framed. He, he did the crimes he did. But then they, they formulate a theory going back to when he was a minor and he had that, that head injury where they put a metal plate in his head that perhaps when they did that surgery, they did not do it correctly. And that perhaps his head injury is what was making him act in a villainous manner. Uh, particularly given that he could demonstrate that he does have a law-abiding side to him. And so that just became this very interesting thread of the historical narrative where Dolly took to the vaudeville circuit to try to to plead for Roy's behalf. And it was uh, the practice of lobotomies hadn't quite come into vogue yet. Uh, so this was all in the 1920s when Dolly went on to the vaudeville circuit. Lobotomies didn't necessarily become part of the the medical practice until the 1930s. But but Dolly, and then you had mentioned earlier, one of the police officers who had arrested Roy, the arresting police officer named Louis Sonny, also advocated that what Roy really needed was a brain operation. They didn't use a word, but that would have been a lobotomy, and that if they could just give him a lobotomy, then he could, should be released from prison. And of course, in that time period, they didn't have the understanding or the foresight to realize how terrible the lobotomy practice is. But that was what their strategy was. Right. So they were thinking on those lines. And she became, Dolly became kind of a mental health practitioner for the rest of her life, right? Because Correct. She was she one of the first there. nurses at Napa State, uh, the mental ho hospital. And so, again, that was there was just so many fascinating directions to this historical story. And so it just kind of made me wonder if her marriage to Roy motivated her decision to eventually become a mental health nurse or if she just always had that. And by chance, she became married to a guy who might have been a sociopath or maybe he was just kind of a charming con man or maybe he legitimately did have a head injury uh, due to the the fact that this all happened about a hundred years ago and all the participants are, are now dead. Uh, we, we can't quite ask any more follow-up questions, but again, I think the mystery is what keeps it in an entertaining and engaging story. Right. Like what's his real personality? Was it, is he brain damaged? He was smart enough to get out of places and work his way out of jails and stuff. So he could had some uh, intellectual capacities, poor impulse control, maybe, something else like that but he uh he went to alcatraz he ended up just like the title of your book he actually wrote a book about that right about his stay there can you talk about that yeah so um so again so in nine so there 1921 is probably the peak year of of roy gardner doing his shenanigans and his exploits and being in the newspapers all the time um eventually he he is captured and he's eventually sent to leavenworth prison in kansas um, and it's at that point that the strategy shifts from just trying to do a conventional jailbreak to Dolly and Louis Sonny, the, the police officer who arrested him. The strategy shifts to those two going on the vaudeville circuit saying that, you know, Roy should actually be out of prison. He's not going to break out of prison, but what he really needs is a brain surgery. Um, and then this process of being on the vaudeville circuit and doing lots of appeals and lots of letters to prominent politicians, uh, that goes on throughout the bulk of the 1920s. 
Um, and then eventually in time, in the early 1930s, uh, the powers that be are discussing the creation. They didn't use the word supermax prison, but their mentality kind of matches what we think of nowadays of a supermax prison. And that is what eventually became Alcatraz. So Alcatraz, the federal penitentiary, the prototype for the supermax penitentiaries opened up in 1934. And at that time, so Roy and Dolly, prior to all of Roy's criminal shenanigans, they had been Bay Area people. As mentioned before, Roy had a phase where he owned a, a welding operation in Oakland that was very well respected. And he was a welder in the Mare Island shipyards, and he always kind of gravitated back to San Francisco uh, prior or prior to the more notorious bursts of criminality. Uh, San Francisco was always his center of gravity. So when he was at Leavenworth Prison and he had heard about the new creation of this new prison, he globbed on to the idea that, oh, it's going to be in San Francisco, and that's where my wife Dolly lives, so why don't I request a transfer to Alcatraz, and then that will help strengthen my marriage. Even though I've been in prison now for over 10 years, my wife Dolly has stood by my side. We write letters almost constantly. When she can, she can visit. But if I'm in a prison that's in the Bay Area, she could even visit more often. But, and I talk about this in the book, he, he, he underestimated the severity of, of Alcatraz and then things go on a different direction than what he had anticipated. And the, the title of the story of the book, and that's why I wanted, I sent you the clarification earlier. So I, I work at Alcatraz. Everyone has this, or not everyone, but so many people have this preconception that Alcatraz is a haunted, spooky place. So every day I get asked about ghosts. And as staff people, we, we just kind of chuckle and roll our eyes at that. But we just kind of indulge these inquiries. So I, I get asked about ghosts all the time. But the ghost in the Alcatraz ghost story title, it was more of a reference to the current use of ghosts with dating and relationships where when somebody ghosts another person, it means their relationship has suddenly and abruptly ended. And that kind of becomes the metaphor for the, the relationship with Dolly and Roy. And then I had mentioned earlier too that that in many ways I want this book to be a, a metaphor for addiction too. Like I, I talked about this in the introduction, I'm an open book about my own past struggles with addiction. I, I felt like so much of Roy's behavior with the gambling and the putting his wife through hell was so much of an indication of a typical addict codependent relationship that I just thought that it was a good metaphor. And there was, there's a couple of, books about addiction that have ghosts in the title, including In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. So it was those books that kind of influenced my decision to incorporate ghosts into the title. And then I think that people who are struggling with addiction, I just feel like they're really keeping with the metaphor theme. They're just a phantom of their own potential. And I think that that is what this whole story is about, is that who knows what Roy could have been, He, but he just kind of kept, like I said earlier, he kept getting in his own way. And then one thing that always struck me is that when Alcatraz opened in 1934 as a federal penitentiary, that's also right when they started building the Golden Gate Bridge. And Alcatraz, it, it's such an interesting place 
no matter what time period you're looking at, because it's, it's one of the most beautiful, spectacular settings in the Bay Area. And they used to have this prison on it. It's such an odd juxtaposition. And so from Alcatraz, there's such spectacular views of the Golden Gate Bridge. And so the inmates who are on Alcatraz, at various points in their time there, they would have gotten views of the Golden Gate Bridge. And that also would have included the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. And so I was just always imagining if Roy Gardner seeing the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge while imprisoned at Alcatraz and realizing that, man, he could have been a, a foreman on that job, but here he is at Alcatraz. Right. It's really something else. And like, it's interesting. They made the decision to put a prison there with million dollar views. Like you can see the Golden Gate Bridge. You can see the city. I mean, it's incredible that 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 was the choice somebody made back then. But uh, yeah, like you said, he was there. Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly. Right. One of the interesting thing is like he had enough confidence to like write the president's hey let me tell you my story like he really he really thought different like most of these other criminals that maybe hold their heads low but instead it's like i'm sending stuff and these were reprinted in the newspapers too right yes correct and so uh yeah so roy gardner was a writer and so most of my research i was able to pull from his own writings so prior to his big escape from mcneil island penitentiary in seattle back in 1920, he wrote his autobiography up until that point in time, which he sent to newspapers. He he was a darling of uh, newspaper reporters. They loved him because he he liked to talk and he was charming and he wanted to figure out a way in which he could financially support Dolly and their child while he was in prison. And so he wrote a pretty long autobiography of his life up until that point which he sent to newspapers in San Francisco in 1921. And that was published. And that is where I drew upon a lot of my research. And then once he got out of prison, and then this is another really, again, going back to Bay Area history, this is what I thought was really fascinating, was the 1939 uh, Golden Gate International Exhibition out on Treasure Island. Uh, whenever I see Treasure Island now, is kind of going through these weird growth phases where it's kind of unsure what what's to do with it. Uh, for those in, who aren't in the Bay Area, Treasure Island is the island that's right in the middle of the bay, close to Alcatraz, and it's the midpoint of the Bay Bridge to Oakland. But it's an artificially constructed island for this big carnival that they had in 1939, almost like a precursor to Disneyland. And then what I think just the saddest irony to this, so it's in 1939, and the whole purpose of it was to promote world peace. And so, you know, anyone who's with a vague understanding of world history knows what was happening in 1939. And so just kind of the, the sad naivete of, of the folks of making this really big international show to try to promote goodwill. And little did everyone know the sheer scope of the, the hell that was on the horizon. And so at that point, Roy was already out of prison legitimately he had served his time at that point and uh like i mentioned before san francisco was always the center of gravity and so that's when he moved back to the tenderloin and that's looping back to how i became so interested in him is just knowing that he was this old guy at that point he was pretty old he was having a lot of health issues he was living in the in a hotel that had become a precursor to the sros that i ended up working in in the early 2000s that became a source of fascination for me so he's just this old kind of beat up boxer ex-con living in the Tenderloin. 
And then that's when he wrote a book that he titled Helcatraz about his Alcatraz experience. And from there, he peddled it. He got a booth on Treasure Island during that 1939 carnival, the Golden Gate International Exhibition. And so he tried to do that to, to hustle up some money for himself. And that was kind of his last attempt to go straight, so to speak. And have uh, you read, Fo- have, oh, sorry. Have, yes. have you read Helcatraz? Have you read it? It's hard to come yes. by. So uh, Helcatraz is uh, very interesting. It's got a lot of dirt on some of the other inmates of the time period that were at Alcatraz, uh, Al Capone for sure. Uh, Roy Gardner's time at Alcatraz absolutely overlapped with Al Capone's. And at that time period, Al Capone was already suffering the debilitating effects of syphilis. Is right when they were kind of on the cusp of getting antibiotics figured out. So Al Capone was losing his marbles, for lack of a better way of putting it, during his time period at Alcatraz. And that's also when Roy Gardner was there. Roy Gardner was one of the very first inmates there at Alcatraz. Right. And, and you mentioned the escape from Alcatraz. He knew one of the guys who, was, who supposedly escaped too, right? Yes, correct. So um, probably the most famous escape from Alcatraz, again, is the movie Escape from Alcatraz featuring Clint Eastwood. That escape happened later in the Alcatraz timeline. That happened in 1962. But there was a similar escape in the 1930s, the, the second official escape attempt, that had a bit of a similar outcome in that the two involved inmates um, escaped off the island, and they know they got off the island of Alcatraz. They know that they got into the San Francisco Bay, but they were never seen again. They never found a dead body. They were never seen living again. And uh, Roy Gardner definitely was acquaintances with them. So even though Roy Gardner didn't officially participate in that, he probably was keeping mum about it. Probably knew something was up. And right, it's exactly. interesting, like San Francisco at that time, he was involved in almost so many different places and things like you talk about the Panama Pacific exhibit, which is still there out in the uh, Marina area, I think still of San Francisco. <clears throat> yeah. So, so it, the, uh, the palace of fine arts was um, constructed a few years after the 1906 earthquake, when the civic leaders were really trying to announce to the world that San Francisco hasn't been knocked out despite the devastation of the 1906 earthquake and fire. So that was, uh, the Palace of Fine Arts is still the uh, ongoing remnant of that was affair that was kind of similar to the one that they had on Treasure Island in 1939. It was an attempt to, to just inject life into San Francisco. And, and fortunately for us nowadays, the legacy is that beautiful Palace of Fine Arts. But again, uh, what I thought was really amusing to read was the conflict between the civic leaders, uh, between the tone that things should take. Uh, a great book that I read that was part of my research just to kind of get some atmosphere was The Barbary Coast, just about all the wild shenanigans of San Francisco uh, shortly before the 1906 earthquake. And so some people, so when the 1906 earthquake happened, it, it almost wiped San Francisco off the map. So when they were rebuilding it, there was a train of thought that said, hey, let's bring back the Barbary Coast. I, you know, San Francisco, it's a Two fists in drinking town. Let's bring that back. And then other members of the political class said, like, no, 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 no. We don't want to bring that back. We want to make this a more respectable town again. And there's a lot of conflict that in the back and forth was pretty amusing to read. That was the city back at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And it lasted pretty much up till the 60s or 70s, but that's all gone. But it used to be like a fishing you know, transport hub. And, yeah, uh, yeah. 
just totally different time when Gardner was around San Francisco it was uh, really something else, really rough uh, and a lot of tough bars and strip joints and things like that. Yeah. And then I, I also mentioned the, uh, the big strike of 1934 and just along that theme of what you were talking about, how there was just that huge longshoreman strike uh, all near where the, the base of the Bay bridge is and along market street and just, yeah, very bloody. Just a lot, a lot of tough guys for sure. Absolutely. Back then. Yeah. Really rough, really yeah. kind of rough frontier mentality, much more frontier. Now it's like a tech, utopia, right, exactly. but it, it's like inverted. Right, totally right. inverted. Brian, we are at the uh, 36 minute mark. I mean, really interesting story and a very well written book, I, I will say as well, but uh, also brought back a lot of great memories just growing up in San Francisco. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything you'd like to, uh, anything I missed before we wrap this up? No, I think it's a great. Like I said, I, um, one thing that I just found so fascinating is that I just, I couldn't believe that this story hadn't been told. Uh, prior to my learning more about it, once I started working at Alcatraz, it's and every step of the way, every door that I opened, it just got more and more interesting. And while it's very much anchored in San Francisco, he got around when he was on the lam, he was all up and down the West Coast. And then Louis Senny, the police officer who arrested him, that that was just another fascinating character. And again, he joined on, he joined the vaudeville circuit to try to plead for Roy Gardner's release from prison. Uh, but he took on it. It was a much more of a uh, P.T. Barnum element with his show. And it was just kind of a fascinating bit of research on him as well. And he covered a lot of turf. I, I likened him almost as a precursor to, to Jack Kerouac on the road in terms of all hmm. the mileage he covered around the country. Wow, interesting. Yeah, where's the best place for people to get Alcatraz ghost stories? Amazon, or do you have a website? Uh, yeah, so it's available through Amazon. Um, it's available through many local bookstores. Uh, people who would prefer to to sidestep Amazon, they're they're welcome to order it through any neighborhood bookstore. Can order it uh, for you, uh, and then Amazon, if, if that's not an option, Amazon can also absolutely do it as well. And then my website, just to get more information about readings and other activities around town is just my name brianstannard.com b-r-i-a-n-s-t-a-n-n-a-r-d.com dot com gotcha and is that the best place people have questions or yeah reach that, out to? i absolutely welcome questions and comments uh, the email address is affiliated through that so it's at info at brianstannard.com for email gotcha. inquiries awesome well congrats on the first book again the title full title is alcatraz ghost story Roy Gardner's Amazing Train Robberies, Escapes, and Lifelong Love. And the author is Brian Stannard, S-T-A-N-N-A-R-D. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, William. All right. Thank you.